Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back of the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, The Unseen Hand of God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 38, verses 12 to 30, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, How God Changes Lives. I need to let the cat out of the bag. Spoiler alert. (laughs) But before we begin our study in the last part of Genesis 38, well, let me tell you how the story ends. Remember how the story began? Judah, Joseph's fourth son, is seeing the wheels fall off his life and his walk with God. Now, we aren't surprised. I mean, after all, this family, although it is called by God, lives in a very sensual culture and also an idolatrous culture. Along the way, Reuben, he's the oldest, and he's supposed to give leadership to the family. Well, he slept with one of his father's concubines. Actually, it's the concubine Billah. And that means, of course, that she was the mother of two of his half-brothers, Naphtali and Dan. Well, that's bad. And consequently, Jacob, their father, no longer looks to him for leadership. So one down. And then next, there are the two next brothers, Simeon and Levi, Well, they wiped out an entire village because the chief of the village, well, his son raped their sister. So Jacob saw Simeon and Levi as men of vengeance, not men of prudence. And so he didn't look to them for leadership either. Well, dad looked to Joseph and he was the second youngest in the family. But of course, dad now thinks Joseph was killed by wild animals. And Judah, who is the fourth in the family, might have been expected to lead. But what dad doesn't know is that it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Now the family of Abraham, the hope of the world, is falling apart. Judah has left the family. His best friend in the world seems to be a Canaanite man named Hira the Adulamite. And Judah marries a Canaanite woman. He has three sons, a daughter-in-law. And because of rank sin against God, God kills Judah's two oldest sons. Judah now sends his daughter-in-law home to her parents and refuses to give his third son to her, as was the custom of the day, and then he simply carries on. Well, Judah is a proud man. He's walked away from God. He's a cold, selfish man who would, rather than teaching his youngest son to be faithful to God, he would rather betray his daughter-in-law. So here now is the spoiler alert. When we come to the end of Genesis, we're going to meet Judah again. And I got to warn you, He's going to look very different from the picture we find here. And just so that we're clear, the events at the end of Genesis probably take place, well, perhaps only a year after the events that we read about in Genesis 38. What happens a year later? Well, we meet a broken man, deeply aware of his guilt in selling Joseph into slavery. We meet a man who will not sell his dad's new favorite son, Benjamin, as he sold Joseph. And we meet a man who is willing to sacrifice all for his family. And finally, we meet a man as his father lies dying. The father will say to Judah, Judah, your brothers will praise you. And one of your offspring will become the Messiah, the king of the whole earth. So that's what we're going to see, which of course leads us to a question. What changed? And the reason that's important for us is that when we find out what changed in Judah's life, well, we're also going to find out how God changes lives all the time. And furthermore, when you see yourself going through things that look eerily similar to what Judah went through, might I ask you not to despair? God is changing you. God has methods in which he makes self-serving men and women into men and women of God. When God does some of those things to you, things that he did to Judah, you want to sit up 
and look for the unseen hand of God. Well, very good. That's, that's where we're going. But before we see the change, we need one more glimpse into Judah's character. That is, the kind of man he was before the change began. I'm reading here Genesis 38, verses 12 to 19. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she rose and went away. Taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So Judah has now witnessed three deaths in the family. His two oldest boys have died. Now his wife has died. He is left with only himself and his one son. As we saw yesterday, Judah feels no sense of obligation towards his daughter-in-law that she should bear a son to replace his dead son and so stand in line for the inheritance. He will leave Tamar in her parents' household. As far as he's concerned, that part of his life is now over. And I see a pattern here. Judah walked out on his father's family, and now he's walked away from his daughter-in-law. Well, it's sheep shearing season, and he's heading out to Timnah with his Canaanite buddy, Hira the Adulamite. And from what I understand of the Canaanite practice, this was the time of parties and celebration. Alcohol would have been abundant, singing, and you have to imagine that prostitutes would have plied their wares at just such times. Now, it is important to assess what Tamar was about to do. According to the custom of the day, the brother of her dead husband was given the duty to have a child with her, and that child would inherit her husband's share of the family fortune. But as we've also seen, Judah wants nothing of that. If Tamar is left bereft, well, it's none of his concern. So what do we make of her dressing up as a prostitute and then enticing him to do what he would not get his son to do? Is she an immoral woman? It's a hard question to answer. You know, from a later biblical perspective, we do know that God demands that sex be restricted to marriage. But remember, there was a kind of a marriage. It was called a liverite marriage. It's a unique marriage in which a widow had children by her dead brother's closest relative. I know, I know to our ears that that does sound strange. But this was, even in biblical times, thought to be holy and right. And let me take you to Ruth chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And before I read that, remember, Ruth is married off to a relative of her dead husband, and she will bear children through him. Now, at the marriage of Ruth and her husband Boaz, the people of the town gather to celebrate the marriage, and they have a word of blessing for Boaz, who's the husband, and this is what they say. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. 
because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Isn't that fascinating? You know, in time, Perez, who came from the union of Judah and Tamar, would be considered as a blessed occasion from the Lord. So does that surprise you? Well, let me surprise you even further. You know, when Matthew is giving the genealogy of Jesus, he lists only four women. And you guessed it, Matthew makes sure that he mentions Tamar. Now, it may be that listing Tamar is Matthew's way of saying that, you know, in the course of time, there were Gentiles who were grafted into the line of Jesus. Remember, Matthew also mentions Rahab and Ruth, and those were also Gentile women. But that might just be the point. Tamar will be grafted into the line, not only of Israel, but into the line of the Messiah himself. And so however we think of Tamar's dressing as a prostitute to to entice her father-in-law, we should not think of her longing for sensuality or some weird sexual tryst, if that's what we see. And we've completely missed the account. She's a woman who has been cut off from her inheritance and her place in the family of God's people. Like Joseph, who was sold into slavery, Judah was willing to sell her out, cutting her off from the family and letting her suffer whatever may come. And she's not going down easily. She will fight for her rightful place in the family, and might I add, she will fight for her rightful place among the people of God. So if you view her act through that lens, you will see her rightly. She's not a prostitute. She's a woman desperate for her spiritual inheritance. While Judah, he's very different. Now, he's looking for a prostitute. It's party time in Timnah, woo-hoo! Well, actually, it's just a little more complicated than that. He's actually not looking for a call girl by the road. It turns out he's looking for something else, and it has to do with Judah's new spirituality that he has adopted from Canaanite culture. Psalms of the Seasons is our 2020 Back to the Bible Canada scripture calendar. And it reminds us of so many things. It reminds us of the beauty and magnificence of this creation and the beauty of God's Word. A uniquely designed Bible reading plan by Dr. Newfeld is placed within the calendar, encouraging each of us to open up our Bibles every day. This is a practice and discipline critical to creating a steadfast foundation for faith. Use your calendar as a reminder to engage in the Bible every day and use the Bible reading plan to read through the Bible in 2020. This resource is filled with encouragement and it's yours for free. Just ask. Simply request your copy today and perhaps consider a gracious gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Either way, call us for your free calendar at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at Back to the Bible. You know, the key to understanding our text is found in verse 15. It says, When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Now, you might read that and think that it must have been a custom that prostitutes wore a veil over their face. But as far as I know, Daughters, wives, and concubines wore veils, but prostitutes didn't. Prostitutes were not veiled. However, I'm also led to understand that sacred prostitutes did wear veils. 
And if that does reflect the culture of the day, and again, that's an if, but that would explain why later on, when Judah sends his buddy Hira to go out and look for her, he asks about the shrine prostitute. See, it seems possible then that this is how Tamar dressed herself, as a shrine prostitute. And again, as I say, I am aware that there are other Bible teachers who are going to argue that that all that Judah was doing was looking for any old prostitute. But at least from my vantage point, it seems likely that he was looking for a temple prostitute. Well, why does that matter? Well, it might be that Judah was simply a John. That is, someone who has spent his time always with prostitutes, and and Tamar knew that, and that's how she enticed him. But we also know that in the ancient Canaanite world, where Asherah worship had become commonplace, temple prostitution was connected to agricultural feast days. That is, the act of visiting a cult prostitute was seen as a fertility rite. That fertility rite would guarantee an abundance of goats and sheep and good crops as well. Now, I raise this because I think it's possible that our picture of Judah is the picture of a man who is immoral to be sure, but he's also a man who is deeply influenced by Canaanite religion and Canaanite idolatry. Now, if I'm right about that, then notice how this scene plays out. Judah propositions her not knowing who she is. She then responds by saying, what will you pay me? It's as if she doesn't know. But he knows the going price quite well. So without a hesitation, he promises her a young goat from the flock. And of course, there is no negotiation. He doesn't expect one. And of course, she's not looking for a goat. But here she sees an advantage and we get a sense of just how quick-witted she actually was. She has enough sense to look for a pledge. She asks for his signet, his cord, and the staff in his hand. Now, the signet with a cord attached, as I understand it, would have been a cylinder seal. Often it was made of metal, and it was worn around the neck, and it served as an insignia of a prominent man. And the staff would normally have had a mark of ownership etched on the top of it. In other words, this gave his identity. She says, I'm going to hold on to them until you come back. And it just so happens that her quick wit would save her life later on. It would seem like God in in providence was protecting her. Well, that, if you will, is a snapshot of just the kind of man that Judah had become. But remember, God is going to start a work in Judah that in his future, this will not be his defining characteristic. So let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God can change the worst of sinners and and make that man or woman into a transformed and holy child of God? Do you think he can do that for you? Well, let's see the first step. See, up till now, I think it's fair to say that Judah has believed himself to be the master of his own destiny. He's arrogant, he's merciless, and he's proud. But now in an act of transforming him, God will begin to replace his pride with humility. So I'm reading now verses 20 to 23. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Now you're gonna notice that Judah has an immediate concern. 
He's not concerned about the goat or even the loss of his personal seals. He can replace that. He is concerned about becoming the brunt of jokes and the object of scorn and the sudden loss of status in his community. Remember, he's a proud man, and proud men are very concerned with how they look. Humble people are different. Remember, Paul, it's in Galatians 6.14. He said, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That is, I'm overwhelmingly proud of the cross of Christ, and outside of that, I would take pride in nothing. After all, everything I've received, I received from him. Let the world think me a fool. I have Christ. But Judah is far from where Paul was. Judah cares a great deal about how he looks. But now a prostitute has his seal, and she can display this to the entire community that he's been visiting hookers. Now, I think the heart of seeing this event rightly is to notice that in the eyes of Canaanite culture, there's a world of difference between seeing a temple prostitute and then seeing simply a call girl on the roadside. That's why Hira, who's Judah's buddy, has no difficulty asking everyone in the area where the cult prostitute is. You know, this to the Canaanite community was just as natural as asking where the local Starbucks is. But you were desperate, or at the very least, kind of like a lowlife, if you visited just plain old sex workers. That's what the lower kind of person does. And when Hira comes back and says there never was a cult prostitute in the area, Well, Judah has a sneaking suspicion that this woman might not have been as advertised. And if that becomes known, he's visiting everyday hookers. He's going to be disgraced. Let me give you an example. A number of years ago, I received notice that there had been a number of prostitutes plying their trade close to the church building where I was then serving as a senior pastor. And I received notice that the police had infiltrated them and a number of female police officers were dressed as prostitutes and they immediately arrested the men who had propositioned them. And I was also informed that the men who had been arrested would have their names published in the paper. You know, my first thought was, oh dear Lord, I pray that no man from our church is on the list. Well, indeed, no man from our church was on that list, but that makes the point. You know, that kind of an event is life-changing. Now, Judah feels the pressure of humiliation, but it, it turns out he's about to be humiliated far more than he can imagine. So let's continue to read. I'm reading verses 24 to 26. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. See, I see two things here. You know, first, if my interpretation of this matter has been right, well, that would explain Judah's anger. Yeah, he visits shrine prostitutes, but in his mind, that's a very different thing. That's a spiritual thing. And on the other hand, a rank hooker, that's disgusting. And by the way, In God's eyes, well, there's actually no difference between a shrine prostitute and a street worker. It's called sexual uncleanness. It's it's called in the New Testament porneia, meaning any sexual act outside of marriage. You know, Judah's anger is just the anger of a man who doesn't really know right from wrong. But Tamar is about to humiliate Judah to such a degree 
that this one moment will become, for him, a turning point in his life. She produces the signet and the staff and not only exposes what Judah has been up to, but also exposes him as a man who doesn't even care about the members of his own family. And then before the others, in front of whom he wanted Tamar burned to death, confronted by his anger and confronted by his condemnation of prostitutes, well, it now becomes clear he visits prostitutes, confronted by his failure as a man who should take care of his family. Judah makes a statement that is the beginning of a world-shaking event for him. The ESV translates what he says simply this, she is more righteous than I. The scholar Bruce Waltke, who's a good Hebrew scholar, argues the passage should best be translated, she is righteous, not I. Suddenly, and in front of his community, Judah must confess who he actually is. Of course, everyone already knows it. He's not just a sinner. He's a lowlife. He cares only about himself. Well, humility can be the beginning of a journey toward God. Of course, in some cases, people will only curse God when they're discovered, and then they'll spend the rest of their lives denying their own sin and trying to cover up. Judah, on the other hand, does neither of those. When we next meet him, he will be back with his family, and Tamar finds her place in the family of Abraham. She will give birth to twin boys, and the older, Perez, will become the ancestor of King David, and then eventually this will become the line of Jesus himself. I'm reminded that sin can't keep us from God. Pride and unwillingness to repent does. But Judah has seen himself for what he is, and he knows he needs a savior. How about you? have to look at this and say, you know, pride is really this man's downfall. I mean, it's obvious. I mean, and you see it, it's obvious in people's lives, you know, if they're haughty or they're arrogant, pride is there. But there's all different types of pride, I would think, that hold you back from, from Christ. Yeah, I mean, Jesus tells about the religious man who comes to the altar and he looks over at the sinner that's next to him and he thanks God that he isn't as, as despicable as the man who's praying beside him. And of course, what Jesus wants to say is that actually the guy who thinks that is far more despicable than the guy who's beside him. So you know, it's very easy for us to have a certain kind of pride that keeps us from God, but there's another kind of religious pride in which a person glories in what they have accomplished for God. And uh, this kind of pride just finally is this, this assault against the glory of God. And God wants to break us of that as well. So It's important. God changes our lives through breaking our pride. Thanks so much, John, and thanks for your message today. And remember to join us again next week for more of our series, The Unseen Hand of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. We're so grateful for all of our listeners right across this beautiful country. And if you'd like to become a part of the team of Back to the Bible Canada, well, this month we'd like to invite you to become a monthly partner or also to participate in our special match campaign this month. So for every dollar you give towards the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again or in doubt, another dollar will be given up to $50,000, expanding our opportunity to minister God's Word across Canada and beyond. If you've been listening and perhaps you've never taken the opportunity to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada before, you know what? This just might be the perfect time. 
Join us in our $50,000 match campaign in October or become a monthly partner. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or donate securely online back to the Bible. Dot CA.